Well, hello everybody, this is Russ, K5TUX, with a special episode, my OSCON update number two of Linux and the Hamshack, episode number 019A. Richard is not going to be with us tonight, he has plenty going on this week, as do I, but I'm going to carry on and sort of fill in this little bit of dead air with my final wrap-up of OSCON from... 2009, about three weeks back. I want to say hello to everybody in the chat room. Thanks for stopping by tonight. I think some information may have gone out saying there wouldn't be a broadcast tonight, so if you're here, thanks for stopping by anyway. We will do the real episode, number 20, next week, Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Central, 0100 Zulu time. So this is sort of to fill in the gap. We'll push this back a week when both of us can sit down and breathe for a little while and get a regular episode out and maybe even try and plan some content. You never know. I've got a few notes to go over. As soon as I get done with that, I will start talking about some of the things I left out from update number one about some of the interesting things that I learned while out at OSCON. There's not going to be much in the way of ham radio topics in this episode tonight. So if you're looking for radio information, uh, you might want to wait till the next episode comes out or listen to back episodes or whatever. This one's primarily going to be about Linux, open source, and I'm even going to delve into a little bit of legalese. So I'm going to talk about some OSCON stuff, and if anybody has any topics they'd like to hear about or if they have any questions they want to ask, I can certainly address that, anybody in the chat room. Uh, in between what I have here, this will probably wind up being a somewhat abbreviated episode because I'm by myself and I'm not, I don't have the ramble capability that Richard does, but I'm going to do my best. I talked about a few topics last time, basically the things that happened early on in the week when I went to OSCON, how I got there, what I did for the first couple of days. So this is going to follow up starting with uh, Wednesday and going through my departure on Saturday. The first session that I went to on Wednesday was one on ButterFS, which is BTRFS, Bravo, Tango, Romeo, Foxtrot, Sierra. This is being developed as what will eventually, as I understand it, be a replacement for EXT3 and EXT4. It's supposed to be much better. It's supposed to incorporate features that EXT3 and EXT4 don't currently provide, but some other file systems like RiserFS and ZFS already have. Currently, as I understand it, ButterFS is in pre-alpha. I'm not even sure it has any kind of a release right now. And I'm pretty sure the only way you can get it is you can download it as source and you can get it through Subversion or some other version control program. It's definitely an active development. There's a lot of bugs in it right now, and most of the functionality, as far as I know, doesn't even work. You can use it as a file system on your computer if you want to. It's, like I say, pre-alpha. It's extremely unstable. It does work, but some of the things that are in it, or going to be in it, uh, don't necessarily work so far. One of the features that it's going to have that's a benefit to, or that's better than EXT3 and EXT4, is that it will have a seamless integration with multiple underlying devices, sort of what Logical Volume Manager does, but it will be native to ButterFS, which is definitely a nice feature. You can do that now with EXT3 and EXT4 using the Logical Volume Manager. It's not necessarily intuitive, and to have that built in will be nice. It also has built-in checksumming, 
so that files that reside on the file system will have an internal database of accuracy, which is always good, and it has the ability to create snapshots on the fly. So you'll be able to have your point-in-time backups of all your data using ButterFS. So these are all great things. I'm looking forward to see how it develops. Right now, I can't be bothered to expend the energy to download and get this thing running, considering that it doesn't really work. And I don't have any pure development environments around here, so I just had to go on what I heard. And I should throw in that the topic was given by Valerie Aurora of Red Hat Systems. A really good presenter and dealt well with a difficult topic, trying to expound on something that doesn't really work. It's sort of a virtual technology when you can't display anything right now. She did show a couple of demonstrations of ButterFS in action, but like I said, most of the features aren't active currently. So she couldn't demo them. It was basically just a theoretical discussion of what's coming next. Bill in the chat room, K9WKA, made a comment about using more CPU horsepower for ButterFS. And apparently it's already been benchmarked against EXT3 and EXT4. For standard file systems, it apparently it has equivalent specifications as far as CPU usage and speed. And when it comes to file systems with small... Uh, large amounts of small files, it's supposed to be much, much faster than EXT3 without using any extra power. So moving on to the next session that I attended that was presented by Keith Bergelt of the Open Invention Network called the Linux Defenders Stop the Trolls, Protect Linux, and Further Innovation. Started out with a bunch of legalese and I was wondering if I should even be in the session, but about halfway through things started to make a little more sense. What they're talking about in this is how freedom is a war, basically, behind the scenes. Freedom, I'm talking about, is in freedom of speech, especially when it comes to intellectual property, prior art, and software development. What apparently the Open Invention Network does is what a lot of other companies are doing, which is buying up software patents. However, the Open Invention Network buys up patents that they think are going to be useful in blocking other companies from taking over those patents and using the intellectual property contained in the patents to either stifle creativity, stifle development, or to wind up extorting large amounts of money from people who would use it. Other companies buy up patents in order to make money on them. They figure out what they think is going to be useful in the future They buy the patents, and then when somebody wants to use the technology, they try and make money by enforcing the patent on those people who would use it. So the Open Invention Network is trying to get patents before troll companies can buy them to keep innovation going. That was basically how it came out, and by the end of the talk, I actually understood that. Um, There are other companies that do the same kind of thing. There's the Free Software Foundation. They promote open source and trying to keep patents from infringing on innovation and development. Uh, I believe they're at www.fsf.org. Any of these things I'm going to wind up putting in the show notes. So if uh, you miss one of these URLs or companies or organizations that I'm mentioning or any of the people, just look in the show notes on the Linux in the Hamshack website at blacksparrowmedia.com stroke LHS, and all of that information will be there for you. The next session was actually a little bit more esoteric than the one on legal issues and patents. It was called Building a Private Cloud with Ubuntu Server. 
The talk was basically about a cloud computing platform called Eucalyptus. It was presented by Rick Clark and Soren Hansen, both from Canonical. So they were intimately aware of how cloud computing works under Ubuntu, since they work for Ubuntu. Unfortunately, cloud computing is one of those hot-button topics right now. They're talking about it everywhere. And there are a thousand different ways to implement cloud computing. Eucalyptus is the one they talked about. I'm not really sure how cloud computing differs from virtualization on steroids, basically. There's lots of things that go into it, things that are much too advanced to get into right now. It's basically virtualization. It creates contained environments. It's especially useful for companies that do development and want to keep users isolated from one another, giving them virtual environments in which they have their own basic development playground. It's also useful for like virtual public server or virtual private server hosts who want to split resources on a machine and provide virtual private servers to customers. But that's really all I'm going to go into here. It's a, it's a pretty advanced topic. If you want to look up cloud computing, if you do a Google search, you're going to find about 10 billion hits for cloud computing because that's, that's really what's going on these days. But unless you're an ISP or a VPS provider or a developer, you're really not going to have any need for cloud computing. The next session I went to, presented by a couple of guys from Intel, which I've currently forgotten, the notes from my personal schedule for OSCON have a different person who apparently didn't show up at the conference. So it was taught by two other guys from Intel who were talking about the principles of CPU architecture and basically why it's so much harder these days to make computers faster than they were. It used to be not too long ago that it seemed like every other week they were coming out with some kind of new processor technology where they were either increasing the clock speed or the cache or something like that, but they've come to a sort of deadlock right now. Things are still getting faster, but they're doing it in different, different ways. Mostly it's by parallelization right now. Clock speeds are actually going down somewhat, and cores are going up. You're getting more cores with slower speeds in order to keep the heat coefficients on your processors down. And they're increasing L1 and L2 caches in the processors, and that's how they're making things faster these days. Basically, the more cache you have, the faster your CPU is going to be. That's why a Xeon tends to be a lot faster than a Celeron, because a Celeron has much less cache than a Xeon does. The biggest problem is if the cache gets too large, you spend all of your time writing data into cache, and then the CPU winds up spending a lot of time idle. So the Intel guys were basically going on about how they're trying to balance cores with clock speeds with cache to try and make things faster. There's lots of different processor architectures out there, the IA64s, the AMD64s, the Atoms, etc., etc. But things are not really getting faster like they used to. Innovation is on the way. Liquid-cooled computing hasn't really come into its own yet, so the heat coefficient is still a big factor. One of these days, there'll be a breakthrough, and things will get faster in a big way. But until then, uh, we're relying on new technologies like solid-state drives to get things into cache faster. And other than that, we just kind of have to sit it out and see what happens next. The next session I went to is the one where I was in the presence of Stormy Peters from the Gnome Foundation, who I talked about in the last episode. I talked about how 
GNOME 3.0 was supposed to be a little bit lighter weight and a lot faster than the current version of GNOME, or GNOME, which is 2.2. They're supposed to be fixing a lot of bugs, making the interface a lot more user-friendly, and trying to win over converts from some of the other desktop environments and KDE. But her session was actually about the role of users in open source, and she talked about how consumers and the open source community don't really interact but how users are very important to open source projects because they're the ones who spread the word about them, who motivate developers, who test software, who lend credibility to the industry and to open source architecture, who contribute financially by buying software products that aren't necessarily free as in beer, and who participate in user groups and focus groups and talk to the developers about you know software products and the users of open source are the ones who do all of the promotion. So her session was about that. It was basically a roundtable discussion. She got people interested and tried to get ideas from them about how the GNOME Foundation and other open source community efforts like hers could help get users more interested in open source. You know, user groups, targeted marketing, things like that were all this kind of stuff that came up. So I'd be interested to hear what our listeners have to say. So if you'd like to send us a comment about how to get users more interested in open source and how to get more people to use open source, you know, send us a comment via the website, send us an email, or even send us a voice comment. We've got a new phone number for doing that, and I'll get to that toward the end of the episode. On Friday, they tend to put things that are more fun than particularly technology-oriented. Whenever I go to a conference and Paul Fenwick is there, I always attend whatever talk he's doing. I can say the same for another guy named David Blank Edelman. If I see either of those guys doing a lecture at a conference, I will go to their session because they are both hilarious. The only real downfall is that both of them are Perl gurus, and most of the time what they talk about is Perl, but they usually lend their topics to something real-world so that everybody can benefit, even if they're not a Perl programmer or a Perl developer. Paul Fenwick, in this particular talk, discussed a function in Perl, which I don't remember right now. I'll put it in the show notes if I can if I can dig it up. But basically, he showed how to program in Perl in Klingon. And I have to say, there wasn't really much in there in the way of learning anything, but it was hysterical to watch somebody actually put together a Perl program entirely in written Klingon that could be parsed and executed just like a normal program. Really, really fun stuff. Um, I think the slide presentation is available somewhere. If I can find a link to that, I will definitely post it so everybody can get a look at his little dissertation on programming Perl and Klingon. It was great. All right, and the last thing I did at OSCON didn't have anything to do with the conference itself, but there was a walking tour of a museum that was next door to the conference center and the hotel I happened to be staying in, in San Jose, and it was called the Tech Museum of Innovation. And what they did was they provided a walking tour of the museum for conference attendees, but they gave, instead of having people just wander through the museum and checking out the exhibits and stuff, they actually gave a behind-the-scenes look at what goes on to making the exhibits in the museum. They were kind of actively recruiting developers, uh, there were several parts of the museum that were shut down because they were in active development or they were in the moving process. But what made the Tech Museum of Innovation 
uh, relevant to OSCON is that all of the technology used to make all of the exhibits was done in open source. Everything from the ticket counters to the exhibits themselves, if they had any kind of interaction with humans, it was all done with open source on the back end. And that was really neat. And they were looking for developers. They wanted people who were interested in that sort of thing to sign on with the tech museum so they could get more uh, active development, put out more exhibits, and uh, get things sort of rolling. There were quite a few people there when I was there, apart from the OSCON delegation. So it seems like a very popular place in downtown San Jose. It's pretty easy to get to. It's right off the light rail and everything. So it seemed really neat. One of the coolest things they had was each ticket you got, when you got it, it had a barcode on it and an ID number that was associated with the ticket you have. And in each of the exhibits, there were several places where you could do some activity and then scan your barcode. And what that did was it created a repository on the Tech Innovations website where you could go home after you went to the museum, enter in to their web portal, and put in the number on your ticket. And when you did that, you got a log of basically everything you did at the Tech Museum. And if you went to an exhibit, for example, that took a picture of you, or did something special with your own interaction and showed something special about your participation in the exhibit, it would show up on the website. So there would be pictures, videos, or whatever that were of you and your visit to the tech site, which is really cool. It was one of the things that made it most interesting for the visitors. And every exhibit has some kind of scannable part where you can relive whatever you did when you were there. And of course, each time you go, it's different. And I believe the typical admission is like $5 to the museum, so it's really inexpensive. And if you pay another $5, you get an IMAX movie too. So 10 bucks gives you all-day entrance and an IMAX movie, so pretty good. And I had a lot of fun there, and everybody else seemed to too. And getting the in-depth look at some of the exhibits was really cool. And you can find out more about the Tech Museum of Innovation at thetech.com. Dot org, T-H-E-T-E-C-H dot O-R-G. So that's pretty much it. After Friday night and the Tech Museum of Innovation, I basically sat around the room, packed up, and waited for my very early morning flight the next day. I left out of San Jose at about 7 in the morning. Uh, I had to fly through Atlanta on the way back and managed to get to Branson at, I believe, about 5 p.m. Uh, local time. But all in all, OSCON was a fun trip. Uh, it's hard to recommend it for anyone other than a student or somebody who works for a business who allows people to go to a conference like that, as tuition for these conferences is fairly expensive, unless you are a student. Exhibitions are always free, but then exhibitions are only, you know, vendors, you know, touting their own products. That's why they're free. But I do appreciate the opportunity that I get to go to these things and to learn the things I do. And that's why I'm trying to bring that to Linux in the Hamshack listeners. So I'm going to stand by here and see if there are any questions or comments that I can address in the chat room before I get ready to wind up with the conclusion stuff that I have. And then we'll call this a podcast. All right, not seeing anything in the chat room, I'm going to wrap up the official part of this podcast. And then I will be willing to chat with everybody in the chat room for a little while afterwards. So next time, if you want to join in on the chat room fun, feel free to check us out at blacksparrowmedia.com stroke LHS. 
or you can go to ustream.tv and look for Linux in the Ham Shack. Anytime we get questions or comments from the chat room, we will try and put them into the podcast whenever possible. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on that you don't actually hear in the edited version of the podcast, and sometimes it's a lot of fun. So make sure you stick around for the blooper reel and get in on that next week. This will be edited as soon as I get it done and put out as soon as possible. So I should be able to say that the next podcast live will be on Tuesday, August 18th at 8 p.m. Central Time, 0100 Zulu. So check it out then. And one week after that will be the official edited podcast release via iTunes and via the feed links on the website. I would like to let everybody know that we haven't really had a lot of success getting people to comment via voice. And part of that is probably because it was a toll call, and I perfectly well understand. But I have just acquired for Linux in the Hamshack a toll-free number. So if you would like to call in and leave a message as a voice comment, question, or suggestion for the program, we will get it on for you. That new number is one 888 455-0305. And that is displayed prominently on the Linux in the Hamshack website. So feel free to give us a call, leave us a message, and we will put your voice on the podcast. And if you want to leave us a message that way, but don't actually want us to broadcast your comment, just let us know and we will keep your information private. On future episodes, we are probably going to be switching to Gizmo as far as our SIP and voice client. Skype has been working reasonably well, but Skype has been dealing with some issues with eBay and patent infringement. And while that doesn't necessarily mean anything, I think we're going to switch to Gizmo just because it's a technology that a lot of open source people are using, and it works well. So if anybody wants to get into a conversation with us during the podcast or in the future, if you happen to be doing an interview with us, please uh, download Gizmo. We will be using that for our voice clients from now on. At some point, we may be switching to stickham.com for our video needs because Ustream has been giving me all sorts of problems, especially with my camera. If that, in fact, is going to happen, I'll let everybody know and where we can be found on stickham.com if it comes to that. But for now, everything will still be on Ustream.tv. You can also find Ustream.tv at ustre.am. Both of those should get you to where you need to go. Just look for Linux in the handshake. So episode number 20 will be recorded next week. It'll be released the week after that. So I just want to thank everybody for downloading this OSCON update number two, episode number 19A of Linux in the Ham Shack. Thanks for listening in. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com stroke J.R. Woodman. And you can use J.R. Woodman on almost every other social networking site on the internet to find me. From Facebook to MySpace to ping.fm to you name it, I'm probably there somewhere. You can send me an email at k5tux at blacksparrowmedia.com. You can post to the forums at blacksparrowmedia.com. And you can comment on the website at blacksparrowmedia.com stroke LHS. You can email Richard at kb5jbv at blacksparrowmedia.com. And so from the Pine Forest in north central Arkansas, this is Russ, K5TUX, and snoring away in the bunker in southeast Dallas is Richard, and we will see you all next time.